Amen. Amen. One last announcement. Uh, next week, we'll have Pastor Jim Gallagher from Calvary Chapel Vero Beach with us. So if you're looking to invite some friends and family, next Sunday is a great Sunday for that. Matthew chapter 5. At first, my goal was to get through the whole chapter. Then my wife says, I know you. You're never going to go through the whole chapter. Then I said, for sure I'm going to go through the whole chapter. Then I said, I'll go through 12 verses. Now we're going to go through five verses. So that's our, that's our goal this morning is to get through the first five verses in Matthew chapter 5. We'll read through it and then I'll back up, get context, and then start going through the chapter. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist and his ministry out in the wilderness. At the end of chapter 3, we saw Jesus being baptized, again, always teaching and leading by example. At the end of chapter 3, it transfers into chapter 4, and we see Jesus going away, being led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted out in the wilderness by Satan himself. Satan is able, uh, Jesus is able to defeat Satan, defeat temptation and show us the way that we should be able to defeat it and get through it as well. And then Jesus begins his great ministry, his ministry following similar to that of John the Baptist. It all starts off with one word. What does the gospel start off with? Repent. Repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in that repentance, he begins to do signs and wonders, miracles, healing people. The multitudes come. And now as the multitudes come to him, Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, they come to him from all Syria. They come to him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea and beyond the Jordan. And as Jesus has this huge multitude, what does he do? He passes the collection offering two, three, four times. Is that what he does, right? He tries to build his own brand. He tries to build his own image. No, he sits down and begins to teach them. Again, that's the mindset of Jesus is repentance and then learning of Christ and following hard after him. We see that he goes up on the mountain. And as he goes up on the mountain, he sits down so that the disciples, all the disciples could hear him. And see him more clearly. And oftentimes, if we want to hear from Jesus, it's an uphill journey. It's an uphill journey. I hate to break it to you, but the path of least resistance will not lead you to Jesus Christ. It's not going to lead you to more holiness. It's not going to lead you to looking more and more like Jesus. 
It's going uphill. It's going against the current. It's taking the road that's more difficult in life oftentimes leads us to look more and more like our king and like our master. He sits down. This would be common practice for teachers within this culture. It would be vice versa of what we have here. I'd be able to sit down and be comfortable, and then all of you would be standing up, right? Although it would be difficult with pens and notebooks and Bibles, right, trying to stand up and do that all at once. We also know that Jesus, he had different groups of disciples. This is a huge multitude, and within this multitude, you have people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. We also know that he has a group of 70 disciples that went out and did miracles and preached the kingdom of heaven. Then we know the famous 12 disciples, and even within the 12, there were three specific disciples that got to know Jesus in a closer and more intimate way. And this message, the the Beatitudes, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' largest sermon. And there's certain portions of Scripture I come to, like, Lord, I can't add, there's nothing to add to this, right? How do you add to a sermon that Jesus taught? There's not much to add, right? But we're going to do our best here to develop just how deep and the, that's the, how deep the conversation and the mindset, the character that we're to put on. The message here is for his disciples. It's for someone who has received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And yet Jesus doesn't water down the message. He doesn't change it for unbeliever and believer alike. He gives just the message he has for his disciples for the world to see. There's no way I can do this in my own strength and having to cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need you to do this in me. That word disciple, it's a learner, a pupil, a student. It's one who follows someone else's teaching. I encourage you to stop just asking if you're a Christian. I encourage you to ask yourself, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Many people claim that they're Christians, right? For years, I haven't listened to rap music in a long time, but for years, right, even secular rap rappers, they'd have one song that's about killing and raping everybody, and then the last song would be, thank you, Jesus, for this day, right? And they'd call themselves Christians. And in the world today, especially in America, there's very little to lose in labeling yourself and calling yourself a Christian. You may lose a couple followers, a couple people may be angry at you, but very rarely is it going to cost you your own life. An even heavier description of a disciple is one who accepts and helps spread the teachings of another. And here there's greater depth to this. If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, how have we this week helped spread the gospel? How have you this week helped spread the teachings of Jesus Christ? A disciple, not only do we believe it, but we follow him, we're learning from him, and then we're going out trying to spread the teachings of Jesus Christ. And this Sermon on the Mount is not just a checklist of disciplines that we're trying to work on. This is a list of attitudes and characteristics that a son or daughter of the king should already possess. This is how we are to live. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom of heaven belongs to Jesus Christ and those who belong to him. And if we belong to him, we're going to live like this. We're going to think like this. These character traits are going to be inside each and every one of us. However, we need to have a great balance with this sermon 
Because there's no doubt each of us should have a certain measure of these beatitudes, but there's always more room to grow. Be careful with the person that says, hey, the beatitudes checklist, been there, done that, I got all of that down pat. Be careful with that person. We should also be careful with the person who calls themselves a Christian, and yet none of these characteristics are demonstrated in their life. By their fruits, you will know them. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul, he shows us firsthand the balance. The balance of growing and being sanctified and yet realizing I still have to grow more. And there's still more sanctification that has to happen in my life. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 12 tells us, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on. Again, no, no room for sinless perfection within Scripture, right? Paul's saying, hey, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained. He continues, verse 12, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. Again, each of us were in this process of growing and maturing and growing and maturing to the day we see Jesus face to face. There's always more room to grow. And may each of us be pressing towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Back to Matthew chapter 5. We look at verse 3 now. God bless you. Look at verse 3 now. And it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word blessed, if we're honest, right, even just saying God bless you, is a religious word, right? It's a Christian word, if you would, that we're using this word that what it means is, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. But it goes so much deeper than that. Because for most of us, our happiness comes and goes almost in an instant. You buy a new car and you receive it, you drive it for the first time. Oh, how happy I am, right? I got this new car. It smells so good. The AC has AC in the seats. Woof. I'm so excited about this car, right? Then you get the first payment. A month later, happiness gone. That happiness is gone. You park it in the supermarket, you go into the store, you come out, there's a big ding, a big scratch, that happiness is gone. It's momentary. It goes and comes oftentimes dependent on our comfort. But this happiness speaks of a joy that is deep inside of us. Oh, how happy. William Barclay says it describes that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable. 
and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. I don't know if you've ever met someone that they're going through an enormous difficulty and yet they're even keeled, they're smiling, they're almost joking about the situation that they're in. And they have that joy which the storms of life come but their life's built on the rock so they can get through it. Charles Spurgeon says, note also with delight that the blessing is in every case in the present tense. It's a happiness to be enjoyed and delighted in right now. It's not a blessed that shall be, but it is blessings that are. Blessings that are right now. As we read these nine blessings, they don't make sense in human or fleshly terms. Oh, how happy it is to be poor, said no one ever, right? Oh, how happy it is to be mourning. Oh, how happy it is to not be happy, right? It it makes no sense in natural terms, in human terms, in fleshly terms. And that's why we need the mind of Christ. And our self-discipline, our own sweat, our own trying cannot give us the mindset or the heart of Christ. That's why these characteristics are in those who are already sons and daughters of God. Oh, how happy are you. Oh, how joyful you are with present enjoyment and delight when you are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the word happy and the word being poor seem so strange in the same sentence. Especially when the depths of poverty being spoken of here are the very lowest of the low. It's not poor as in a very low income. It's not poor as in arroz con huevo frito, right? Rice and fried eggs. It's not that poor. It's not rice with Vienna sausages. It's not that poor. It's not so poor that your mom rips the napkins and gives you half and your brother half because you got to make the napkins go longer. It's not so poor that you get hand-me-downs and you never have new clothes. It's not so poor that abuela is the one that sews you clothes and you get made fun of in school for them, right? The word poor here is speaking of a poverty that is so bad that if you do not go out and beg, you will die. This is the poverty spoken of here. And the mindset that Jesus gives us is so contrary to the mindset of this world. That's why we need to be praying Romans 12 verse 2 over and over and over again. Lord, I don't want to be conformed to this world. Lord, transform me by the renewing of my mind. Lord, transform my mind. A great example of this is Jesus speaking to the disciples on their favorite topic. Do you know what the disciples' favorite topic was? Who was the best? Their favorite topic was themselves, right? If we're honest, it's a lot of our favorite topics too, right? What's your favorite thing to talk about? How great I am. How much better I am than you are, right? If you're quick in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, we see Jesus. Again, these are his disciples. These are the apostles. They're not the B-apostles or C-apostles or leftover apostles, right? This is the group of men that Jesus, after praying and fasting, selects. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. If you're a parent, you can sympathize with Jesus here. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. 
For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Right? You're a parent, you hear your kids talking about something, you stay quiet, and then you ask, hey, what were you guys talking about in there? There's just dead silence. Verse 35, Jesus, he sits down, he calls the 12, and he says to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That in the kingdom of heaven, in God's economy, if we want to be the greatest, the way up is down. You want your marriage to be better? Outserve your spouse. You want your job to be better? Outserve your boss or the people working around you. You want something in life to be better? Serve harder and in a greater capacity than the people around you. Take the lowest seat. This is the kingdom of heaven's economy. And we know that because this is the lifestyle that Jesus lived. He came to this world not to be served, but to serve. So we need to constantly be praying, Lord, make my mindset like your mindset. Back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, it's not just speaking about an outward position or which social class you belong to, what kind of vehicle you drive. But poor in spirit is speaking about who we are in our deepest frame of mind. About who you consider yourself to be when no one's around and when things are quiet. If you would, what your frame of mind is when you're watching the news. When the political party you don't agree with rears their ugly head, what is your mindset? When people around you are doing things, what's your mindset? David Brown, he says, those who in their deepest consciousness realize their entire need, that before God I am void of everything, that in our heart we truly believe without you I can do nothing. Psalm 40 verse 17 says, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. Psalm 69 verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set, high, set me upon high. Psalm 112 verse 4, Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. James chapter 2, verse 5, James tells us, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor things of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Let's turn to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 2, and in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at two different churches very quickly here. Letters that Jesus writes to these two churches to the church of Smyrna, and to the church of Laodicea. And each of these churches, as they look at their own spiritual estate, one thinks they're very rich, and yet they're poor. And one church thinks they're very poor, and Jesus says, you are so rich. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus writing to the church of Smyrna, and he tells them, but I know your works, tribulations, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
That's the church of Smyrna. You turn the page to Revelation 3. Verse 16. And here Jesus says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Is that ever a sentence you want someone to speak about you, right? Is that what you want on your Valentine card, right, on Tuesday, right? I love you so much, I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. Not, not at all. It's a bad state of affairs. So Jesus, writing to a church, says you are in such a bad place. You, you, it makes me nauseous. Verse 17, because the reason for this is because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9 verse 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Family, our first point of contact with God is our helplessness. It's our helplessness. Saying, Lord, I am so lacking. Lord, I am so broke. Lord, I have nothing to bring to this spiritual table that if I do not beg you to do something here, I am going to die spiritually for all of eternity. This is where salvation begins. This is where repentance begins. Lord, I bring nothing to this table. Charles Spurgeon says, A ladder, if it's to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground. Or feeble climbers will never be able to mount. It would have been a grievous discouragement to struggling faith if the first blessing had been given to the pure in heart. To that excellence, the young beginner makes no claim, while to poverty of spirit he can reach without going beyond his line. Are we poor in spirit? God places the first step towards the kingdom of heaven on the lowest shelf. Everyone can access it. It just takes humility. It just takes honesty, realizing who we are and how destitute we are. And whoever is able to see just how sick we are, just how blind I am, just how poor I am, just how naked I am, and beg to Jesus Christ, what Jesus tells us is that the kingdom of heaven is yours. It's just humility. We just have to come with that honesty and humility. In the Old Testament, in Job chapter 33, verse 27, it says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. Verse 28, he will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. This is repentance here. It's realizing, Lord, I've sinned. I have perverted what was right, and I realized, Lord, it did not profit me at all. Lord, I believe your economy, that the wages of sin is death. It's not going to be a profit, a profit to me to sin. And now when we come clean and honest to the Lord, it tells us that he will redeem his soul from going down to the pit. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, it puts it this way. 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, if we say we're not really that bad, if we say, hey, that other person is worse than I am, oh, that other, oh, those people, or that, if we point the finger at others, if we're saying we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, the incredible trade that Jesus offers up to us, that if we realize and we're honest with just how poor we are spiritually, he gives us the kingdom of heaven. He gives it to us. You won't be a second-class citizen in heaven if you realize how poor and needy you are. You won't have to wait in purgatory and have to do some weird things to get your way out. You don't have to work your way up to the top in heaven. The moment we become sons and daughters of the king, we become heirs to the throne. Spurgeon says, To the poor in spirit remains a boundless, endless, faultless kingdom, which renders them blessed in the esteem of him who is God over all, blessed forever. This is God, the one that owns the kingdom. He says, hey, if you're poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And this isn't just the first step towards the kingdom of heaven on the bottom shelf. This is the foundation to our part in this relationship with God. If we do not possess this character trait, we will never be able to possess the other eight blesseds. If it is not the self-righteous in spirit that inherit the kingdom of heaven, it's not the proud in spirit that inherit the kingdom of heaven, it is the poor in spirit that receive this incredible blessing. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1, Italians call it Malachi, right? Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud... Yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. Not a verse we like to quote in God's book of promises to us, right? That if we are proud in heart, if we are like that church that says, Lord, I am wealthy, I have need of nothing, it tells us that one day there's a day coming that's burning like an oven, and all the proud in heart, all the wicked will be burnt up. James chapter 4, verse 6, it tells us he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, the mindset of Christ. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to be honest and say, Lord, I need help. Lord, I need help. I can't do this. I'm willing to put it all out there. I'm willing to confess my sins, trusting that you will be just and faithful to not only forgive me, but to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Back to Matthew chapter 5, now verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, what sense does this make? Oh, how happy are those who are not happy, right? Oh, how happy are those who are crying and sad. It seems strange. And what is Jesus speaking about here? 
Is he speaking about those who are crying over that first car payment? Is he speaking to those people that walked out of Publix and there's a huge ding and scratch on their door? Is he crying about those, talking about those who are crying over spilled milk? Those weeping in the ice cream shop because they chose the wrong flavor or their ice cream ball fell off the cone, right? What is he speaking about? Jesus is here speaking about our reaction towards our sin. What is our reaction towards our sin? Once we've realized, Lord, I am so spiritually bankrupt and poor, how do we react to that? This second beatitude complements the first. The first one, our mindset, our view of ourself, and now the second, our reaction towards the truth of who we are being so poor and needy spiritually. Isaiah 66 verse 2, it tells us, says the Lord, but on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. We need to have the proper mindset that once we realize how poor and needy we are, we mourn over our sin and we run to Jesus Christ. I'm sure there's, there's no one here that you had that New Year's resolution of losing weight or saving money, and then you had that first dessert, and what do you say? It's too late. Just throw in the towel, right? Forget it. I'll just go for it next year. You, you, you choose to save money, and you blew your money, and I'll oh, forget it. I'll just do it next year. That's not the right mindset. The mindset is, Lord, I have failed, and I need you. It's begging him. It's mourning over our sin. William Barclay tells us the Greek word to mourn used here is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It's the word that's used for mourning the dead. The passionate lament for one who was loved. And it is those who mourn as if mourning for someone that they love who has died. It is those who mourn over their sin in this way that will be comforted. Those who attempt to cover up their sin will never be comforted. Those who make light of their sin will never be comforted. Those who make little of their sin will never be comforted. Those who try and make excuses for their sins will never be comforted. Those who try to rationalize their sins will never be comforted. Those who compare their sins to others that we view as more sinful will never be comforted. It is only those who mourn over their own sins. These are the people who are promised you will be comforted. We could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks to this. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, not Paul, but Paul, Paul speaks to this as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. What's the response of the church in Corinth towards this sin? Verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Oftentimes when we sin, instead of mourning, we get puffed up. 
We almost get proud of it. Or we just say, Lord, you didn't kill me last time I sinned, so I'm just going to go for it again. Not that big of a deal. I'm just going to go back to that well once again instead of weeping over it. That just because there's sexual immorality in the church and in the world today, somehow we make light of it. We try to rationalize it. We make excuses for our sin because somebody else sinned against us. And Paul says, this is not the play. You shouldn't be puffed up in this. You should be mourning about this. How oftentimes as parents, instead of dealing with the sin in our children, we are puffed up at how gracious we are being in the sin that's happening in our kids. Instead of mourning and weeping there in front of them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul now addresses this once again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9. And the difference and the importance in what kind of mourning, what kind of sorrow is happening in our lives when we see our past sins or present sins or even consider future sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What has your sorrow led to? Has it led to death or has it led to salvation? Is it looking more and more like Jesus Christ or is it looking more and more like this world? Instead of, man, I messed up, so let me just give up. Let me just wallow here in self-pity. Hey, I messed up, so now I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to press into the Lord. I'm not going to confess my sins. Instead of doing all of that, which makes no sense biblically, instead I'm going to confess my sins to the Lord. I'm going to come to the house of God. I'm going to come to the family of God, and I'm going to have that sorrow that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Not just sorrow and sadness that leads to nothing. Because then we stay in that sinful state and it only leads to death. We need to have that godly sorrow that produces repentance in us. We've looked at that thoroughly the past couple weeks. Not just, Lord, I'm sorry, and then we do it again in a week or two weeks or a month from now. But, Lord, I'm sorry, I feel terrible, and now here's the plan of action to never do this again. Lord, I'm going to do my best. Lord, I need you to change my heart and change my mind. But Lord, you've told me that I can resist Satan. I can resist temptation and he's going to flee from me. So Lord, I'm going to trust your word right now. That I'm going to make it through this. Lord, your word promises and tells me that the Holy Spirit is going to give me a way out of the temptation every single time. So Lord, I'm looking for that way out. And if I just got to run and leave my tunic, I'm going to run and leave my tunic. But Lord, I trust your word. David Brown tells us religion, according to the Bible, is neither a set of intellectual convictions nor a bundle of emotional feelings, but a compound of both, the former giving birth to the latter. Thus closely do these first two beatitudes cohere. The mourners shall be comforted. We need both. Hopefully your walk and relationship with the Lord produces some type of emotion, some type of gratitude, some type of feeling. We're not driven by feelings, but hopefully, man, that conviction, that gratitude from God leads to emotion in our lives. David Brown continues, he says, Even now, 
and hopefully you can identify with this, they get beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Sowing in tears, they reap even here in joy. Still all present comfort, even the best, is partial, interrupted, and short-lived. But the days of our mourning shall soon be ended. And then God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. Then in the fullest sense shall the mourners be comforted. The comfort promised here to us is not just consolation given through words or even through gifts. Like when you had a bad day and someone buys you uh, chocolate or a balloon, right? Talking about balloons, all the balloons going on, right? It's not just that. It's not someone just texting you. It's not just someone calling you. And when we're going through mourning, when we're going through difficulty, it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to receive texts and phone calls of comfort, of scripture, and love. But how much more comfort and refreshment do we receive when someone who loves us, when someone who understands us, comes into our presence? How much more does that comfort get multiplied? Especially when it's someone you love, someone who understands you, and they bring some food to boot, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 Paul's mindset, right? He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul's saying that there's a special fellowship. He's able to enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ as he goes through the sufferings of this life. And it brings a closer unity and fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. And if we are those who are mourning over our own sin, we can consider Jesus and how he dealt with people that were mourning over their sin. You can think of the woman caught in adultery. He doesn't say, hey, I, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. The comfort that he provides. Finally, verse 5 tells us, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's one thing to realize our own spiritual poverty. It's another thing to mourn over our own sins and the penalty of our sins. And Jesus has spoken to our reaction to how we have lived and our reaction to how we have treated Jesus. But now Jesus goes even deeper and Jesus speaks to our reaction on how others live and how others treat us. And it gets a bit more difficult. That word meek speaks of restraint. It's a powerful personality properly controlled with humility. Simply put, meekness is strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. A weak, an indifferent, or an apathetic person doesn't have to do that much to be controlled. They're always being controlled, right? Because they're weak, they're indifferent, they're apathetic. That husband that's given up and he's not checked into the family when he says, honey, you can pick where we're eating today. He, he can't make a big deal about it. He's been apathetic for weeks or months or years. If someone is weak and getting beat up, they can't say, hey, all right, I'll let you beat me up today, right? Just ha that's not the way it works. They don't have a choice in the matter. We can think of David. Was David a weak individual? In case you didn't know, I don't know, right? 
Let's ask ourselves, how many of you have killed a lion with your own hands? How many of you have killed a bear with your own hands and a couple rocks? Who here has defeated a nine-foot soldier with only a couple rocks and a slingshot? David was a warrior. David was a man that was constantly putting to flight other evil and other armies. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, David had all the right to give Saul what he deserved. Saul had taken his wife. Saul had taken his home. Saul had taken his job. Saul had completely disrupted David's life when David had done nothing wrong. And the opportunity is given to David to kill Saul and finish off all of this unfairness. And yet in 1 Samuel 24 verse 10, David tells Saul, Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David had meekness. He had all the power, all the ability, all the right, and yet he showed restraint. We can think of Moses and his dealings with the Israelites. I hope you're reading through your Bible this year, whether it's our reading plan or any reading plan. But we just went through Exodus 32. The Lord, he's sick and tired of the nation of Israel. He saves them, and now they make a golden calf out of nowhere. They're naked. They're dancing. They're having orgies while Moses is up in the mountain talking with God. God tells Moses in Exodus 32, verse 9, I've seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them. And Moses, I will make of you a great nation. I'm going to wipe out all the Israelites, and we're going to make Motown, right? We're going to make Motown and the Moites, the Mosesites, right? And we're going to do all of this. Does Moses say, you know what, Lord, I'm sick of their murmuring. Fry them, right? Lord, I'm sick of the complaining. Who really likes leeks and onions? God, get rid of them. I don't want to have to deal with them anymore. No. Moses intercedes and he tells the Lord, Lord, turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm toward your people. Moses goes down. He deals with the sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He deals with the sin. And then in verse 32, he goes back to God and he tells God, God, yet now if you will forgive their sin, Lord, forgive them. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Moses, he was the meekest man that ever lived. Meekness in the Bible is the biblical balance of anger and indifference. It's not being easily provoked, but it's also not sitting around and doing nothing just because of apathy or cowardice. Psalm chapter 4 verse 3 and 4 tells us, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will be near when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. We can be angry. Just don't sin afterwards, right? We can be angry. And when that anger arises, there's so much wisdom in meditating and being still. Taking time to bring it under the authority of Jesus Christ. And the only way to demonstrate meekness is to be in the type of situation where anger and even revenge would be fair. That's the only way to demonstrate that you have meekness. 
In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 4, this is the King James Version. Peter says to the ladies, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Ladies, your husband deserves a verbal whooping. Hold back, right? Hold back. He just made a stupid decision and he wasted all the money. Hold back. Hold back. Reveal and show that meekness, that quiet spirit. We were with a group of guys. One of the guys is getting married and the marriage advice was mentioned. Pastor Sandy says, hey, when you've done wrong in the marriage, be quick to repent. And when you're the one that's right in the marriage, be quick to stay silent, right? Don't say anything about it. That's meekness. 1 Peter chapter 3, then in verse 15 and 17, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's interesting how Peter speaks so much of meekness. If there was a disciple that did not have meekness, it's Peter, right? Quick to put his foot in his mouth quick to cut off ears, quick to do bad decisions, right? But after the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of his heart, he speaks about having that power under control. In meekness, there's no room for bitterness or a hunger for vengeance. That power and ability is to be brought under the authority of God. My rights my privileges and my desires are put to the side and then I am to ask God, what is your will and what is your desire in this situation? David, Moses, even Jesus had all the right to wipe out the people that they were dealing with and yet they showed that they had meekness. James chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. The meek man and the meek woman is able to deal with the pain and sins of this world while looking at their own sin and the own pain that they've brought to other people. And now they take all of this truth and reality and they submit all of it under the mighty hand of God. A meek man, a meek woman, they have to be showing the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 it tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering. That's patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. In the King James, it says meekness right there. And self-control. All of this, it's part of meekness. Being long-suffering, being kind, being good to people when they don't deserve it. Showing gentleness, having self-control. All of this speaks of meekness. 
Adam Clark, he tells us our word meek comes from the old word used for a companion or an equal. Because he who is of a meek or gentle spirit is ever ready to associate with the meanest of those who fear God, feeling himself superior to no one. And well knowing that he has done nothing of spiritual or temporal good, but what he has received from the mere bounty of God, having never deserved any favor from his hand. Is that you? Do you realize all the goodness in my life, all the blessing in my life, it's only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God. I've done nothing to deserve it. I've done nothing to merit it. It's all the grace of God. And does this not go completely opposite to what the world says? Meekness. Our world says the loudest, not meekness. Our world says the loudest, the craziest, the one who shows the most brute force. That's the person that inherits the earth. But guess what? Who's the creator and maker of this planet? It's Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, the meek, they will inherit the earth. We will never receive the short end of the deal when we submit ourselves and our situation under the mighty hand of God. Be reminded, the one who owns the universe tells us, oh, how happy, oh, how joyful, a joy that can't be shaken are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And may we consider the mindset of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 in the King James Version. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And what do we receive? You shall find rest unto your souls. Perhaps you've been so busy, you're not sitting down to learn from Jesus Christ. You're not sitting down saying, Lord, give me this mindset. Teach me how to be meek and lowly in heart. Lord, you were reviled, 1 Peter 2.23. Lord, you were reviled and yet you did not revile in return when you suffered. Lord, teach me how to do this. Lord, you were beaten and bruised for my transgressions. They put a bag over your head and beat you beyond human recognition. And yet you stayed silent. Meekness, power under control. John John Macduff, he says, Be assured, no happiness is equal to that enjoyed by the meek Christian. He has within him a perpetual inner sunshine, a perennial wellspring of peace. He's never ruffled or fretted by real or imaginary injuries. He puts the best construction on motives and actions. And by a gentle answer to unmerited reproach, often disarms wrath. I do believe that a soft answer turns away wrath. Even with your spouse, even with your kids, even with your boss, a soft answer turns away wrath. David Guzik says, through the first three Beatitudes, we notice that the natural man finds no happiness. The natural man finds no blessedness in spiritual poverty in mourning, or in meekness. These are only a blessing for the spiritual man, those who are new creatures in Jesus. And if this whole sermon just seemed as, this is gross, I want nothing to do with any of this, right? If you want heaven, you need to cry out, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. Do you remember before you came to the Lord, that first time that someone says, hey, if you don't change or repent, you're going to hell, right? Did you take that very kindly and nicely? Me go to hell? Dude, you're going to hell. What are you talking about, man? 
Who are you to judge me? Who are you to speak to me about my spiritual poverty? You know who's spiritually poor? You're spiritually poor judging me. Don't you know what the Bible says? Do not judge, right? We've all been there. Someone telling you, hey, come and join our mourning. Not like good mourning. No, like mourning and weeping. Who has joy attending a funeral or being at a place where you're mourning and weeping over your sin? Hey, bro, you want to come over? I'm just crying about how spiritually deprived, how spiritually poor I am. I'll pray for you, man, but I'll talk to you later, right? Or meekness. Who in this world wants to hear about being beaten and bruised and doing nothing about it? None of this makes sense to the natural man. That's why we need to cry out and speak the truth, saying, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, I can't do this in and of myself. Lord, I can't will this. Lord, the best book on self-discipline can't get me here. Lord, you need to change my heart of stone and give me that heart of flesh. Lord, you need to create in me that clean heart, O God. Lord, you need to renew my mind. Lord, you need to renew my inner man today. Because, Lord, I am so puffed up with pride. Lord, I think I'm more spiritual than my spouse. I think I'm more spiritual than my kids. Lord, I think I'm more spiritual than the leaders at the church. I think I can do church better than them. Lord, would you humble me? May each of us be crying out saying, Lord, show me how spiritually poor I truly am. Lord, cause me to mourn over my own sin. Not to show wrath on the sins of others. Lord, show me to mourn over my own sin. And Lord, help me be that meek and gentle man or woman. Lord, grow me in power, but God, give me the ability to have that power under control. So may each of us be crying out. None of this can happen in our own natural man. We can't, there's no book out there, seven disciplines on how to be more meek, right? Don't, that doesn't work. It's spending more and more time at the foot of the cross, more and more time with Jesus, and saying, Jesus, reveal to me who I truly am. Even thinking about this, it's just be bringing Jesus and the reality of Christ into every situation that we're in. If we're honest, it's difficult to really consider, I'm so spiritually rich when you're standing next to Jesus Christ, to consider the judgment seat. What, what spiritual riches will you bring to Jesus Christ? I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer, right? Our only need is to feel our need of Him. And when we feel that need, when we sense that need, may we be quick to run and repent. May we be quick to run and repent. So if the worship team can come up, and we'll pray, and then we'll close in worship. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these attitudes, Lord, for these characteristics. Jesus, we thank you that, Lord, you are such a leader that leads by example, Lord. How you've shown us how you have all these qualities. You showed all these character traits while you were still fully man. And, Lord, we come to you. We believe your word. We trust your word that apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing, Lord. Help me to abide with you more, Lord. Help me to abide in you more. Lord, help me to sense just how desperate I need you, Lord. In my marriage, in my business, with my children, Lord, with friends and relationships, God. Help me to realize just how helpless I am, God. And Lord, help us to press into you. Help us to buy into your word, to trust your word and what it says. And help each of us to truly live by your word, God. 
Help us to not lean on our own understanding. Lord, help us to be sick and tired of our own pride, God. Help us to cry out to you over and over and over again, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's